episode 11 of After the Breach, a podcast for whale enthusiasts by whale enthusiasts. We're your hosts from Friday Harbor on San Juan Island, Washington. Whale Watch captains and professional guides Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu. And you'll hear a familiar voice today, uh, David Hafey, who joined us in episode three. Yeah, and he is back. Um, we have a great episode today. Uh, one of the questions we get quite a bit from from guests on our whale watching tours that we run here is, what do you guys do in your off season? And the answer for most of us is that we go whale watching in other parts of the world. So we run tours here starting in early March. We go through November, December. So we have a few months in the winter to go check out whales in other and other opportunities uh, around the world. And we want to share some stories uh, about what we did this winter and maybe inspire some some travel and some whale watching, uh, not just here in the San Juan Islands, but around the world. Uh, between the three of us, we covered quite a bit of ocean uh, this winter. I'd um, say so, yeah. Yeah, I th- ranging we the Arctic, uh, the Pacific around Mexico, Sea of Cortez, the Southern Ocean, uh, Antarctica, and the North Atlantic. Um, lots to cover. So welcome, Sarah, Davin. Yeah, it's exciting to be back. We haven't uh, we haven't done this in a while. Yeah, little little shaking off a little <laughs> rust. It's been uh, a couple months. Uh, we we. Had talked about possibly doing a remote podcast, but once we were all away, it just it it between the time change, yeah, and the the sparse internet in some places, yeah, very sparse internet, and then the you know amount of time we spent on the water in the dr and you know other things, we just didn't get a chance to sit down and record anything away. Yeah, we we talked about doing it on the um. In the Dominican Republic, Sarah and I were both on uh, a trip together down there with humpbacks that we'll talk about. Uh, Davin was nowhere near us. Uh, he was on the other side of the planet. Hey, and talk about lack of internet. Yeah, no no, no <laughs> yeah. 5G in, in Antarctica. But speaking of running tours starting in early March, if I'm not mistaken, there's one tomorrow. We have our first, first tour tomorrow. First tour of the season tomorrow with uh, Maya's Legacy Whale Watching. We'll yeah. be Running most days for the next few weeks, and then uh, by mid mid March, third week in March, we'll be running every day uh, through the end of the season, through October, November, every day, and then uh, weekends late November and early December. Great time to be here to March and April. The last few years have been pretty strong with whale sightings. I feel like yeah, and the wildlife has been off the hook too. We took the boat out on Saturday and just bounced up to Spiden, and they're already baby baby mouflon sheep. Bouncing nice. around. Awesome. And we did have some uh, some killer whales going through here the last few days. Yeah. Yes, yesterday even. Yesterday even, yes. Yeah. Actually, and was it two days ago? Right we, in the harbor. We had two killer whales right in Friday Harbor. Yeah, I think they came inside of Brown Island, if I heard correctly. Yeah. Pretty cool. So, yeah, come on out uh, and, and join us on the water. Um, David, let's, uh, let's start with your, your adventures this off season. You, uh, you went to both poles. I went to both poles. I spent, what was it? September in Greenland and Arctic Canada. We made it, ooh, I think to 79 degrees North latitude. So that's less than 700 miles from the North pole. Wow. And then spent two months in Antarctica and wow, we saw, we saw a lot of stuff this off season. So the land with bears and the land without. 
very important distinction. <laughs> they do not share the same home, penguins and polar bears. They live in opposite sides of the planet. Uh, we did see both, but in their respective locations for sure. What was um, in, in either on you know, either pole, uh, like one of the most interesting things that you saw species-wise that you wouldn't have maybe expected to see or, you know, low expectations of seeing, but you did end up seeing? That's it. Actually, it's an interesting point, the low expectations. I was thinking a lot about what we were going to talk about today, and I was trying to think of the best encounters that I had with really any species, whether it was whales or otherwise. And the best and most memorable ones were always when we weren't expecting anything, right? Like we were just kind of cruising around, just putting ourselves out into the wilderness to see what we could see and something somewhat unexpected happened. And those are the moments that stick with you because you just, you know, time just freezes and you're in that moment because you weren't really expecting anything. And the moments where you're really, really hungry for that expected encounter and you might not get it or it might not go the same way that you envisioned it um, don't always stick with you the same way. And so we saw a lot of different species. I've got a few stories that were just, I don't even know how to describe them. They were just remarkable. Uh, but one of the unexpected ones was in a place called Baffin Bay between Baffin Island, Canada, and Greenland. And we were just off of this shelf that dropped off from about, I think, 300 feet to several thousand feet. And right along that shelf, we were just trying to cover some ground, cover some miles. And we just kept coming across group after group after group of northern bottlenose whales, which are a species of beaked whale that can dive, I don't know how they know this, maybe some sort of a tag that they can yeah. measure distances underwater, but they can dive in excess of two kilometers below the water and hold their breath over two hours. And so that's a big, big dive. They're wow. going to need to, you know, come up for air and spend a significant amount of time near the surface recovering from those dives. And so they'll come back up to the surface for seven, eight, nine, ten minutes as they're just kind of recovering and get gathering that next round of oxygen. And so we saw, I don't know, seven or eight different groups of probably seven or eight northern bottlenose whales. And they just loiter near the surface of the water for, you know, minutes on end. They were really, really easy to find, really easy to keep track of. And they're surprisingly big they're they're bigger than killer whales yeah i was gonna ask I, like, i'm not familiar with with those so i don't even know what they look like um they're very odd looking and great, i great description <laughs> 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 i mean they are they just have this kind of like bulbous like melon that's uh, and a very uh, you know they're beaked they're a beaked whale um so they have kind of like a bottlenose you know, they're named after bottlenose dolphins. Like you think right. of that bottlenose beak. Um, but that melon is just impressive. It's it yeah. makes you wonder. We'll, we'll put a photo or like a, a picture up. Yeah, in the show notes. Yeah. But they, when we first saw them, we thought they were killer whales because they do have a pretty, pretty substantial dorsal fin. And we thought it was a group of female killer whales or, you know, a group with a female and a couple other females and some juveniles or subadults from a distance and we got closer and closer and then you could actually see when we got close enough that bulbous melon coming out of the water and we realized what they were and we're like man we were not really expecting to see these guys and then they just kept coming and it was right along that shelf like right where it went from relatively shallow 300 feet down to several thousand feet so they were 
definitely working that shelf for whatever they were looking for, probably squid, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I actually saw the southern bottlenose whale this winter in Bremer Bay, which we'll talk about later. But um, I saw bottlenose dolphins. Very cool. <laughs> so we got the bottlenose covered. But, yeah, they're pretty pretty unique. Um, what about They're almost almost 40 feet long, 36-ish feet long, I think, is the yeah. northern. In, what, in excess of 30 feet, yeah. yeah. And what are they doing down at two kilometers I mean, what are, what are they preying on well that's the thing like when you when you talk about these animals diving to such depths it's not like just this quirky superlative right you're not just diving that deep with your buddy brian to say like hey let's set a personal record today and see how deep we can dive they're doing that to dive into deep waters to be effective predators they're diving into these depths with Tremendous pressure, total darkness, and they're not there just to kick around having fun. They're looking for food, and so they're what they're looking for at those depths generally is squid. Wow. Yep. It just kind of puts things in perspective. Sometimes we think we're pretty remarkable species, Homo sapiens, and then there's these other species out there that are routinely diving well below one mile below the surface of the water. For a long time. For a long time, foraging, like doing what, the, going to work, basically. Yeah. That's incredible. What, uh, and you did, and, and I remember you were texting me at one point, you did see uh, belugas up there. Oh my gosh, yeah. So I'm going to try to remember everything that we saw. In just one month, we were really mostly working the Devon Island shoreline in Arctic Canada, and a little bit, we tried to, try to reach Ellesmere Island, which is way high up in the Canadian Arctic, but it was completely blocked by sea ice. But we got to cruise along the ice edge, uh, worked around northwest Greenland a little bit, a little bit around Baffin Island. And in the early part of September, we did come across, we were on shore, we were just kind of hiking around. Um, we'd seen a couple polar bears earlier in, the, I believe that day or maybe the day before. And we were just kind of like carefully walking around, making sure that it was safe for everybody else to come ashore. And we came up over this ridge that looked down into a really shallow cove on the other side. And we just saw probably eight to 12 belugas coming into those shallows and then off in the distance, a few more. And we thought that that was like, oh man, this is going to be the highlight of the season, seeing a, a couple dozen belugas. And a few weeks later, we really... I mean, we really ran into them. We ran into, not <laughs> literally, <laughs> no. we, uh, we found them in numbers, in huge numbers. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds. And then we'd go around the corner into the next bay, and there'd be hundreds and hundreds more. And, man, I, there was this one day, it was just, it was nasty weather no, no matter where you went. And we just went into a bay that I think maybe one or two of us had ever been in before on Devon Island just to get out of the weather. And I think it was blowing like 50 knots on the outside. And we went into this bay and it was maybe blowing 30 knots, which was just on the margins of us to be able to launch our Zodiacs and be able to cruise around safely. And we had spotted some beluga. We didn't know how many, a couple off in the distance. We were, we were going to try to launch the Zodiacs, take them to shore, get people off on shore, and then walk around this point to see if we could see them from shore. And when we did, the whole shoreline, I'm not sure what was happening, but the whole shoreline was just covered with polar cod, like at the high tide line. I'm not sure how this, this occurred. Um, I know that polar cod school up in massive, massive, massive schools 
at that time of year. I, we don't know if it's like for reproduction or if it's safety in numbers or if they're feeding. I scouted around. I asked a couple of biologist friends of mine if they knew, and it's still kind of unresolved why the polar cod, polar cod were doing this. But for some reason, a lot of them got stranded high and dry on the beach, and then there were just tens of thousands of them in the, in the shallow water adjacent to the beach. And we came up on shore, walked over this little high point, and in this bay tucked behind this point were well over 100 beluga whales, like 30 feet from us. Wow. That's amazing. And they were, uh, they were there to, you know, they, they were there for that reason. They were there to exploit the polar cod. And the following like three or four days, no matter where we went on Devon Island, we, it was the same phenomenon. We just go in any cove, any bay, and there's another few hundred more. And it got to the point where we would talk to each other like, oh yeah, another big group of beluga. And like people would continue drinking their coffee because like we'd already... (laughs) Wow. Seen That's amazing. So many aggregations of it. I mean, I wasn't I was still out on the outer decks putting my coffee down like trying to get anybody and everybody to enjoy the moment as well, but uh I think some people had had their fair share of beluga, which is kind of a crazy thing to say, right? That's not an easy species it is, to find. Yeah. It's n- it's not. If you you think about how few uh the number of people in the world have seen them in the wild. Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely not a common sighting. Yeah, and so Getting, ba- or getting back to your original question, then I'll come back to the beluga. It, we, we saw in the Arctic, in Greenland and Arctic Canada, we saw um, humpback whales, of course, minke whales, a lot of fin whales, sperm whales, northern bottlenose whales, narwhal, wow, and <laughs> beluga. I think that's the, the exhaustive list of the, the whales that's we saw incredible. there. Yeah. But the beluga... No killer whales. No, so that was, that's, it. that's actually interesting. I was, I was on the lookout. I was waking up at sunrise, which in the Arctic in the summertime is early, like 3 a.m. every day looking for orca because I think, Sarah, you're probably aware of this. They've been seen more and more and more in the Arctic as sea ice kind of mm-hmm. retreats. And we saw two dorsal fins in the span of a month. But I talked with a lot of people that live in some of these um, high-latitude northern communities, um, predominantly Inuit communities, that have been seeing them more and more. And I did talk to two people on Baffin Island who had seen a group of killer whales challenging a bowhead whale just the day before we arrived. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, I was just reading a paper about how they're seeing more evidence of um, predation or attempted predation um, on bowhead whales by killer whales, like, not necessarily witnessing the actual interactions, but seeing the scarring left behind on bowhead whales. Yeah. And so the, the people who live in those communities are seeing them a lot. We, we never really had a, a good look at them. We saw two dorsal fins off in the distance. We didn't really see any others up there, but we saw a lot of other species, and that was cool. And the beluga it really reminded me of this conversation. I think Sarah's heard me talk about this a number of times. Jeff, I don't know if you have. But years ago, I say years ago, I mean like two years, I guess that's technically accurate, years ago, uh, we had someone on our boat who knew a lot about whale language, but didn't really know much about whale biology, which I thought was a super niche thing to know about. So I kind of asked her a few more questions and she said she worked in research and development for some artificial intelligence research program that was using artificial intelligence to try to crack whale language. And she had been working in the Arctic in Canada. And as far as she had been able to get was there was 
you know, a, a summer meeting ground, this area where multiple groups of like 10 or 12 belugas all meet up. So they form about, I don't know, she said maybe 300 belugas in this one spot. And they were able to use artificial intelligence. And I, you know, I never went and verified this. She could have just been pulling my leg, but she sounded pretty credible. Um, that they were able to determine that every beluga in that, that extended group of about 300 had a sound that corresponded to that individual and they recognized their own sound and they knew all the other sounds to every other whale in that group. So basically names. Like a signature whistle. Right. Yeah. Interesting. That's fascinating. So that's, that's, I couldn't stop thinking about that when we were watching just like literally hundreds of belugas out there in these remote places and they likely knew each other. They likely yeah. knew each other's signature whistle or yeah. name had some sort of relationship dynamic we're aware of each other we're aware of like i don't know this is getting in a little bit uh personification but like probably knew some of their buddies and some of the ones that they didn't really get along with and just sure. had had dynamics yeah and you know it, it always strikes me that you know we hit that line where we're like oh i you know this, this is i'm anthropomorphizing here and and but why wouldn't they right i mean they're these are very intelligent very emotional, very social animals. Why are we the only ones? We're not as unique as we like to think we it, are. That's exactly right. I, I I did hear on on one of my uh, my humpback trips this this here that, that researchers are starting to think that we'll be able to ID individual humpbacks by listening to at least the males listening to their singing because they all have distinctions in their voice. And so, why are we the only ones? Yeah, I mean, a lot of unknowns, right? That how can we really know that? I guess that's maybe one of the advantages of this research and development that's taking place that a lot of us are like, wow, I wonder what good that's going to do the world. But um, it, it could crack open some deep, deep mysteries that yeah. are happening out there. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's move. Let's fly to the the other pole. You don't even want to hear about the narwhals. Huh? Oh do. no, I do. Yeah. I can't, we can't skip, <laughs> skip over that. Cause that's just, yeah. So we were, let's return back to the Arctic for a yeah, moment. Well, here, yeah. Jeff. yeah. We were in, we were in this bay. Gosh, what was that? That was the day after we had seen 10, we had, we saw 10 polar bears in various different locations in one bay all before breakfast. And, uh, that was just like, I don't I, I can't even put into words how incredible that is to see so many apex predators basically doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing without having to worry about any kind of outside interference. And so we'd had a really great day the day before, and we were just planning on taking the ship into a small bay and just putting the Zodiacs in the water and just going for a cruise around some icebergs, just looking around at uh, beautiful landscapes, really. And... A few of us were on the navigation bridge with, well, actually the deck right above the navigation bridge with a couple guests and just, you know, scanning around. You never know what you're going to see. And somebody, one of the guests said, whoa, what's that? And I turned my binoculars to where they were looking and I was looking down the blowholes of three narwhal. Wow. And they were like <laughs> 200 feet from the ship. And I raced outside to the outer decks. They disappeared because they're pretty flighty animals. They, they still are a source of food for a lot of very, very um, rural northern communities. And so they understand that engine noise probably is bad news for them. So they don't really hang around for very long. So we basically just stopped the ship and just scanned for 
30 minutes in all directions, seeing if we could find those three narwhal. And after, I don't know, maybe half an hour or so off in the distance, we saw a group of like 80 of them. Wow. Probably a mile Amazing. and a half away. And a mile and a half away. And they were all swimming really close to shore. I mean, you probably could have waded out in the water and touched one of them. That's how close to shore they were. And so we thought, well, we'll give this a shot. I don't know if uh, it'll work, but we took the ship miles ahead of them, just miles and miles ahead of them so we wouldn't interfere with anything that they were doing. And then we uh, took the cranes on our ship, hooked them up to our Zodiacs, lowered the Zodiacs into the water, and then just kind of puttered slowly to the shoreline and (coughs) turned off our engines, thinking that if we just wait here, maybe they'll keep cruising up the shoreline. And we never saw them. Wow. Never saw them from the Zodiacs. They're pretty, pretty clever. That's amazing. Just to, just to get uh, even from a mile away while we're in 200 feet. That is absolutely incredible. Yeah. yeah. They're really, really, really difficult species to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about how few people yeah. get to see those. Yeah. Bucket list. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things if you go to the Arctic and you're like, man, you know what? I don't care what we see. As long as we see a narwhal, I would probably just eliminate that expectation. <laughs> yeah, stay, better, better stay home at that point. Yeah. Um, all right. Now let's go to the uh, Antarctic. Man, I don't know where to begin. That's like, tell me about your life there. Jeff. Well, I, I, I have, uh, you know, one of the things that I remember um, and I, I can't remember, I may have been in Florida or the Dominican Republic at this point, And you texted me, you're like, Hey, I'm on the ship. These are some iPhone photos of killer whales hunting, like right by your sh- your that's, ship. That's true. Like the that iPhone true. photos. I'm gonna post those in the in the show notes. I mean, it was shocking that they were iPhone photos. Yeah. So, I spent January and February in Antarctica, and before I moved to San Juan Island, that was a big part of my life. I'd spend pretty much the entire Antarctic summer down there for years, and then when I moved here, I kind of scaled back. And then when I met Olivia, I really scaled back. And so this was my first kind of big trip back to Antarctica since probably, well, certainly since March 2020 when COVID hit. Um, that was the last time I had been in Antarctica. And then before that, I hadn't really spent two full months down there for a while. So this was this was a really nice, good, long chunk of time. And see if I can just rattle off the list of the different species we saw down there. We saw Peel's dolphins, um, hourglass dolphins, southern bottlenose Southern bottlenose, bottlenose whale, that's a hard one to say. Uh, sperm whale, a lot of fin whales. I mean, a couple hundred fin whales easily over the course of the couple months. Um, pretty sure we saw a couple blue whales. It was really hard to get photo IDs because they were quite some distance away. Minkies, humpbacks, and then we had several encounters with type A orca. We had a few with type B2 orca, and then the one you're referring to is the type B1 orca. Those are the ones that if you're listening and if you've ever seen the documentaries of killer whales in Antarctica swimming side by side to create this little pressure wave to knock a seal off of an ice flow, and uh, then that seal is a little bit more vulnerable, and it's maybe a little bit of back and forth. The seal hops back up on the ice. The killer whales come back in and create another wave and knock the seal back into the water. That's the type B1 killer did, whale. Did you see that? We didn't. They were patrolling the ice, but there's a difference between ice in Antarctica, uh, glacial ice or brash ice, which is all fresh water coming off of glaciers. That's what icebergs would be or little like just chunks of ice that would be too small for a seal to sit on versus sea ice. 
And we were in this zone where there were like a couple pieces of ice that had calved off of glaciers that might have been suitable for a seal, but not a lot. And then a lot of just really small fragmented pieces of brash ice. So probably not the best location for them to be looking for seals. Although we did just a few hours after this kind of go around the corner in this little bay and there were like 50 crab eater seals in there. So I'm sure didn't take long for those killer whales to find them. But when we saw them from the Zodiac, they were moving not even just in and out of the sea ice, but or the, the brash ice, the kind of bergy bits, the, the small icebergs, that kind of stuff. But they were just going like right through it. They'd surface right in and amongst it, which I hadn't really seen that before. I've seen them avoiding ice and navigating it pretty expertly, but I've never seen them really like just kind of sloshing right up through the mi- middle of all of it. And they were cruising around through all of that, occasionally pausing at a little bit bigger piece of ice and just kind of looking up, nothing there, and then they just kind of keep moving on. And we were just kind of watching from a, a, a bit of a distance, and they just, as killer whales often do, just made a hard right. You know, they don't follow straight lines, just like we in our normal human lives like to do. We like really nice, firm, crisp, straight lines in our daily lives, and whales really have no use for that, of course. And so we were kind of cruising around with them, from a distance and they just made a hard right and swam right toward us and swam basically right behind the back of the Zodiac I was in. And uh, I just pulled out the old iPhone and ended up getting a couple of nice little <laughs> photos of that. That was pretty cool. And you'll see if, if they, if Jeff and Sarah post uh, any of those photos, you'll see there's a pretty distinct greenish yellow color to the white patches, their eye patch and their saddle patch. And that's algae or diatoms colonizing their bodies that, turns them that pretty distinctive color that uh, you don't really see up here. Yeah. Um, just for, for people that might be thinking about traveling down and going, going out to Antarctica. Do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's on my list, but I, I'm just curious, what as far as expectations, how often are you seeing killer whales? That's a good question. I'd say every every voyage is a different amount of time. Some voyages are 10 days, some voyages like that one we saw them on was 22 days and it included visits to South Georgia which is a whole another remarkable place that I could go on for days and days talking about as well as the Falkland Islands and sometimes Cape Horn, uh, sometimes the South Orkney Islands just kind of depending on which which voyage you go on. But I'd say if you're diligent, if you're out looking most of the time, um, you can see them from the ship. Sometimes those those sightings are kind of fleeting, and you have to maybe be going north, and they're going south, and you can't really turn a ship around that quickly and still get to where you're trying to go. So it might be a, a fleeting look, but you usually do see them, at least from the ship. The encounters that you get from a Zodiac are a couple times a year, a couple yeah. times. So it's not, like, it's not like the Salish Sea where you go out and you have a pretty good chance of seeing them most days. Um, down there, it, those encounters are like kind of take your breath away because they're 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 so rare. And when you're in a zodiac, these are if you've ever been out with Mai's Legacy, they're probably half the size of our J one and J two boats, and they sit a lot lower to the water. So like, kind of feels like you're in a canoe with killer whales coming out <laughs> coming at you. That's a pretty I don't know pr- pretty profound experience. I'd say. I bet. Yeah. But also, just something to keep in mind, we had pretty calm, mm, I don't know if I'd say calm, we <laughs> had manageable seas a lot of the season, but we did have one day that was uh, 
is proper is a proper Drake passage. It was a Beaufort scale eleven, which is category violent storm. It was eighty five knot winds and oh my thirty to thirty five foot seas. Wow! And there's nowhere to run. Like there's no bay to tuck into. You're just out there and you have to take it. And that was what the, is that like? Yeah, there. It's <laughs> some people say like, oh, I want to get one of these storms. I really want to feel the power. And you're like, eh, do you? <laughs> and then you feel it for about thirty seconds. You're like, yeah, this is awesome. And then like forty five seconds later, you're like, yeah, this sucks. Let's get out of here. But you can't. You have to just kind of. And and what? How long? Like when you hit that, how long is it? We were in that storm. I mean, the storm was building, so we were in that storm for two days. But it wasn't. <sighs> it wasn't that strong the whole time i'd say it was at that level of strength for probably eight sustained hours wow and is the whole boat puking i I wouldn't know because uh (laughs) at that at that stage um just to prevent anybody because the ship isn't like a flat level platform when you're bouncing around in 30 to 35 foot seas and so at that stage everybody's just basically ordered by the captain to stay in their own cabin except for a lot of the staff, we had to bring everybody sandwiches and stuff. So some people had something to eat if they were you know, capable of eating in those, those seas. Uh, so I don't know. There might have been some of that happening in cabins, but I, I wasn't <laughs> investigating. I just can't imagine that. Yeah. It's, and, and that's the cool thing. Um, there's whales out there in those conditions cruising around like it's no big Nothing, deal, right? Yeah. Like we, we didn't see type A's. Type A's are the ones that, that are often seen preying on other whales and sometimes elephant seals. I think Sarah's got a few encounters with some type A's from Australia also, but they're, um, they're a little bit more like what you'd expect to see of a killer whale up here. They're crisp black and white. Uh, they, they do prey on elephant seals. They prey on minke whales a lot. They've been seen maybe preying on, uh, juvenile humpback whales as well. And we saw them a few times, maybe in like 15 to 20 foot seas. So not 30. And they're just cruising around, like just on patrol looking for lunch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're they're built for that. I yeah. mean they're they're you know they're not they're not confined to to their cabins and <laughs> yeah. and, and someone will bring them a sandwich yeah. if they're hungry. Yeah, the sea state's pretty big. Can somebody bring me a sandwich? I don't. Yeah, that's not it. That's not in their day to day. But yeah, if anybody is interested in going down there, uh, it's not that rough all the time, but it can be. Yeah, I heard it was maybe a little bit windier than normal. This, that's, or maybe I heard wrong. I. I was feeling that. I don't have any data to back that up, but I also haven't looked at, I haven't looked for that data, but it, it felt, the storms felt stronger this year and they felt more just like pervasive. Like they were, Mm -hmm. they're just everywhere. Like even in the protected waters of the Gurlash Strait, we were running into 50 knot winds regularly, which is, I mean, Antarctica is known for being a stormy, windy place with several different varieties of wind, including catabatic winds that just race down mountainsides and can kind of come out of nowhere but usually there's somewhere calm to go and this year it was just like man it's just a windy year I'm not quite sure Mm. what that was all about and I don't know if that was like we're all coming back down there for the first time in a couple years and like oh I guess I forgot how windy it is or if it really was a windier year but it just I I talked to a lot of coworkers, and everybody kind of had the same sense of like man this is this is a particularly stormy season down here interesting I mean, it was windy in Bremer, but it was not that windy. Well, and it was windy uh, in the Dominican Republic and the and Silver Bank. But, I mean, it, it you always get some wind. And, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's some... I, 
the crossing to get out to the Silver Bank, it's it's not the Drake. It's definitely not. You're not hitting <laughs> weather like that. But anywhere I think that you go to experience these incredible wild places that are uh, either completely or very largely untouched by the society and culture of humanity, it, it's it's not it's not the, this flat easy one hour trip it's right you you have to you have to go through some conditions and some rough water well if it were easily accessible you know humans would have you know that's right that's that's exactly what i tell people when they're you know they're feeling a little nervousness about crossing the drake passage when they're already on our ships heading south or people are maybe just kind of inquiring if it's for them and uh, saying, I don't know if I could do the Drake Passage. Can you fly down there? I always, I always just say, like, just do it. Even if you get sick, it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be uncomfortable. But it'll give you a sense of reality for where that place is, how hard it is to get there, how isolated it is from the rest of the world, how powerful the world is, how powerful the animals are that have to deal with that. And then you, you're out there in these storms, you know, 80 knots, and you look out the cabin window, and there's a wandering albatross just, like, cruising around like it's per, like it's like it's nothing like it's like this is exactly what it's been waiting for like oh look at this free source of energy that we're all just gonna kind of do our thing yeah. with it's it's actually it's amazing like it can be uncomfortable like you said not a one hour easy trip across calm seas it's an investment of your comfort for sure but uh ultimately extremely worth it as those adventures usually are it's it's part of the experience and it's part of I think it builds the appreciation of what those special places are when you actually have to go through some not so easy experiences to get there. Yeah. And for me, it like, honestly, when I'm hearing about this or, you know, out on the Southern ocean myself, it makes me think about people that were out here in the 1800s and earlier. Um, with no technology that we have now and they were out there like there was no help coming if they needed it they just they you know they were that intrepid and that oh i think about that all the time when we're in our comfortable ship and uh you know if you're feeling a little chilly you just go into the sauna (laughs) and then you go grab like a a dessert and a whiskey you know whatever the comfort is that you're looking for in that time um take a hot shower you go to the the gym, even if it's calm enough seas or whatever it is, or it's, it's a cold day, um, you know, 32 degrees Fahrenheit and kind of windy. And you're like, Oh man, it's cold. And I, I think boy, those people like 200 years ago, this would have been the best day of their entire <laughs> right, year. Right. And they were traveling down there with no maps, no weather forecast, no communication of the outside world. Yeah. And no, no one to bring them sandwiches on no, a rough exactly, day. Yeah, I mean, you actually, you don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i could i could go on and on and on but i think uh australia and mexico and the dominican republic have uh, some interesting encounters this this off season as well yeah before we move on i think one of the things that we should do for the show notes is put together a map of where we we (laughs) all cover a map of the world and i mean it, it almost is um and then maybe a species list, at least in terms of all the different whale species that we between saw. the three of us. Between yeah, the three of that'd us, that'd be it's, cool. It's pretty, pretty uh, remarkable. Yeah. One other thing about that, um, just kind of to to wrap up the polar regions, and you talking about them being somewhat isolated, hard to get to. 
you get to these places and in the Arctic, it's a different feel. There's communities, but they're a couple hundred miles from each other, but they still are out on the land. They're still out moving around, traveling from community to community. So there's a, there's a human presence there. There's an air force base, a U.S. air force base in Northwest Greenland. So there's a human presence there, but it's not readily felt or seen once you get away from the communities. And then in Antarctica, the only signs of civilization you see might be another ship that you see once every several days or a research station. And so you get to these places and when you see these, these colonies of penguins that are several hundred thousand birds, and then there's colonies of petrels in the, you know, in the hills above or terns or skuas or whatever the species are, depending on where you're at. And then you see all the seals and you see all the whales, you know, they're not just down there, um, getting fed by, yeah, I don't know, a grocery store. They're, they're there because that's where the food is. That's where the life is. I always come back to that phrase, life beget, or life creates the conditions that are conducive to life. And you have all those animals down there that are hungry, that are feeding themselves, that are feeding their, their offspring. It just speaks to how much life is in the ocean that's available for all of those different animals, all those different predators, the penguins, the albatross, the toothed whales, the baleen whales, the seals, and they're all, you know, looking quite healthy, quite robust, looking very, very well fed. And it just kind of the how prolific the scale of the food web down there and even up north in the Arctic is just it's it's hard to wrap your mind around. And it's also really beautiful when you think, man, if you just give life a chance, just look what it can do. Right. It's just everywhere. It's amazing. Um, and, and I had a parallel experience with, with the breeding waters uh, on the Silver Bank for the, for the humpbacks of just watching watching different life and where we're not involved and we're not in the way and, and, and watching what, what that does. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And to witness that is definitely perspective and life-changing for, for us. It's, it's one of those things I think the more people that can experience that, the better off we will be mm -hmm. um, because it really changes. I think it changes your perspective of, of who we are and what we're doing here and what, uh, what is the real world. I think you get this, you very quickly come to the realization of the real world is not um, the stock market and investments and inflation, the real world is what you're witnessing out in some of these incredibly natural places. That, that yeah, brings oh, our here. bubble. It just expands the bubble that we live in, right? Well, it, it brings me back to two conversations I've had in the past. Uh, one was I spent a substantial amount of my life in Juneau, Alaska, and I, I, it took me years and years to establish a, a very sincere relationship with a, an elder um, from the Clinkett Nation who we, we had some incredible talks over the years. And this one time he told me, you know, you, you Westerners view nature as this thing separate from us. Like you go visit it on the weekend and then you go back to your life at home and you don't realize that nature you're in it all the time you just don't see it because we've built up our you know our infrastructure within it but we're still surrounded by it and it that that perception or that philosophy that you go visit nature leads you to feeling the sense of estrangement like you're not you're no longer part of it and you can just visit it quickly and then come back and 
he he said that's dangerous for you know what's inside of you and how you view yourself and how you view the world around you and so then it, that brings me to another conversation I had in Antarctica this woman was like oh I don't want this trip to end because then I'll have to go back to the real world <laughs> and I understood what she was getting at and I, I approached it delicately you know I didn't want to pretend like I knew anything that she didn't already know but I just was trying to remind her like this this is the real world too like we're a biological species living in a biological world like we're we're here we're here in the world I, I get where you're not necessarily wanting to return to because you have to go back to work and fight traffic and all that but this is also it and like the more you can come to these pl- places not just Antarctica but really anywhere where there's life around us bird watching in your backyard exactly mm-hmm. yeah, plants trees uh fungus caterpillar whatever it is like the whole dynamic relationship like nothing exists in isolation right everything exists in relationship with something else and the more you can expose yourself to that that i don't know just it it like you said it changes the it changes everything changes how you go about your day-to-day changes how you feel about yourself changes how you feel about a lot of things really the more time you can spend just surrounded by biodiversity really Absolutely. I mean, and we'll talk about the Silver Bank, but one of the things that strikes me every time I go there is that we're surrounded by humpbacks that are there for uh, breeding or some of the females are are having their calves there. And there's really almost no signs of humanity there. There are only three companies that have permits to even be there. You don't see anybody else. And you're surrounded by humpbacks that are, they are living their rituals of the their winter, um, all gathering from uh, the, the east coast of the United States, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, the Arctic. They're all coming down there. It's the largest breeding area. And they are unfolding, the events that you see unfolding, these are rituals that they've been doing for thousands of years. And there, there are no, there's no, almost no evidence of the constructs that we've created in our society. And it really is grounding to experience and, and perspective changing of, wow, there, there's so much more to this world than what our tunnel vision forces on us sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, and you can have the, exactly have those experiences just going in your backyard and, you know, having right. quiet and check out the birds that are around. Yeah, I think, I mean, any of these places that we visit, you know, of course we all love the whales, right? And that's one of our things. But, um, you know, I've come to, like, understand at least about myself in, in going to these places is that it really, it's not just, like, some perspective. It's It alters who I am as a person. Like, I am forever changed when I visit these places and see... Um, the vastness of life outside of what, you know, s- you know, society is created or, or everyday human life. And um, I, I think that's important. I think, you know, when I go year to year, year after year, it's just, just, just continuing to change who I am and how I am a part of this world. Yeah. And it's, no, it should come as no surprise then that us, like you do what you do because it has changed you. Right. And you do what Jeff, you do what you do because it's changed you. And, you can't really imagine, you know, a life where that's absent. 
because when, once it gets inside you, you will fight to, to protect that. You'll fight to keep it as part of your life day, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think I've mentioned this on previous episodes that I wouldn't be here running whale watching tours and sharing whales with people if I had not done that trip to the Silver Bank that changed my life and, and in one moment down there realized that I wanted to spend as much time as I could on this planet being around whales and sharing them with other people. And then it became very clear to me that is what I want to do with, with yeah. my life. And that's when I started making moves to, to come out here. Making phone calls from your <laughs> office <laughs> closet <laughs> From in my Cleveland, office Ohio. closet in <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. And I think this is just kind of hitting me in this conversation. Um, I think that this is to come full circle a little bit. But the reason why in our off season we go whale watching in other parts of the world is it it keeps us connected to having that that ex- grounding experience and and opening the, the perspective changing and opening and it's kind of like that's the world we want to be living in and so why wouldn't we spend our off time doing that? Yeah, too? exactly. Yeah, yeah. You just want to keep like literally your finger on the pulse, like feel the heartbeat of the living world that we belong to right and we we are so fortunate being here and what we get to experience here in our day-to-day life running tours but there are uh other magical places out there with with whales and and wildlife and others you know other species olivia and i just drove across the country from wisconsin just a week ago and i mean it doesn't have to be whales it doesn't have to be in these faraway places that are hard to get to like the Midwest, Nebraska, the Central Flyway, that place in the springtime, the amount of birds that are moving through there going north to the Arctic, just the prolific scale of just the northern shovelers, for example, or the snow geese or the sandhill cranes, like individual species, and then you take them together and you just see how much life is around you and you can understand the journey they're on. They've got a couple more thousand miles to go to go forage on the bounty of life in the short summer months in the Arctic, and then they'll come back in the fall like, you can you can find it in a lot of places. You don't have to travel to the end of the earth to find all this. Yep, absolutely. We're getting deep. <laughs> we are getting so deep. I love it. I love it. It's deep great. like a s- northern a northern a northern <laughs> bottlenose whale. <laughs> like two kilometers. Two col- we're two kilometers down. Nice. <laughs> so continuing on with um, you know, big water crossings, <laughs> um, Sarah spent a month. Yeah, I, well, I was down there for seven weeks, but yeah, about a month in Bremer Bay. So where, where it where is <laughs> where is <laughs> Bremer Bay? Uh, Bremer Bay is in Western Australia, but it's on the su- southern coast. So um, for me, I fly into Perth um, on the west coast, and then it's you know six to eight hour, depending on how you drive, <laughs> uh, down to Bremer Bay. To all, the south. all roads go through Broomhill. <laughs> No, they don't. But the one I did, I took, did go through Broomhill. Um, um, so yeah, it's a, it's it's quite a ways out there. It's a small town. It's about four hundred people. Last time I looked, um, that's funny you say it's a small town with four hundred people because I I work with a couple Australians and then we have some on the ship. I'm like, oh, one of my friends is in Bremer Bay right now, and I'm like, oh, where's that? I'm like, it's in Australia. Oh, never heard of it. It's kind of yeah. interesting, hey? Yeah, a, a lot of people have never heard of Bremer Bay. Um, I think that is changing because of the killer whales down there. But 
um, yeah, definitely. Even in Australia, a lot of people are like, oh, where's Bremer Bay? So I was down there with you in uh, early 2020. (laughs) Right right, as the pandemic was hitting. Yeah. Uh And it is, it, it is all, I mean, incredible population of killer whales and similar to the theme that we've been talking about, like you've got to make a huge effort to get to them because you got to get to Perth and then you've got to get, you know, six hours south of there. And then you're going like 30, 40 miles offshore. Uh, yeah, 25 miles uh, to the continental shelf. And then it's usually, usually 25 to 30 miles is where you're, you're finding them. And uh, tell us a little bit about that population of killer whales. Um, well, there's still a whole lot that I'm learning. So the amount of that I know is minuscule compared to what I don't know. But um, being out with them, they are um, mammal-eating killer whales, but they also eat tuna, squid. Um, so they vary their diet, uh, highly varied. They're not like specific to one type like our southern resident killer whales and our big killer whales are. Um, I think there's some um, thought that they might be... Um, descendant or or um fr- like type a uh antarctic killer whales are fr- coming from that lineage um but i'm not sure how accurate that is they do definitely look uh very similar to the huge eye patches like the type a um and they think that roughly 300 now is what they're estimating for that population down there they have you know 200 and 200 plus in their catalog and there's always more that are popping up popping up and and this is a relatively newly discovered population, yeah, is that correct? 15, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, if you talk to the tuna fishermen out there, they'll tell you they've been there forever, and they have, I'm sure, been down there for for longer than we've known about them. But, uh, yeah, for as far as, like, tourism goes and, and research goes, they kind of were discovered about 15, 15 years ago or so. And they think they are there just in the southern summer? Or yeah, in the austral summer. They're not sure. Yeah, they they seem to. So their their season runs January through the end of April, and as it gets closer to the end of April, they're seeing them less and less. So they do think that they're moving out of that area in other parts of the year, but they're also not out there, you know, outside of the austral summer. Yeah, you can't find what you're not looking for. Right. Um, but not, if they're not there, they they also don't know where they. Right. Going to. With the exception of one pod, n- none of the whales have been seen in other a- anywhere else. Um, but there is one pod that we did see a few times. Really cool, cool group of whales um, that was seen off of Augusta, Western Australia, which is um, kind of to the northwest around the Cape there. So um, Fooey's pod, big male with two big notches in his dorsal fin. I'll put up a, a photo in the notes, but um yeah, it, it was really interesting. It's a very different different kind of group of whales down there than what I'm used to. And what what are the trips like? I, I, you're you're out there all day. It's yeah, it's a big investment to get down there, and it's a big investment in your energy to be on on board. Um, so you're leaving about eight o'clock in the morning. So I was usually to the boat about seven fifteen, um, and you're out coming back about five o'clock. So it's an hour and a half out to the continental shelf. Um, through some big water for us, not for David, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, regularly in like two to three meter swells with some wind wave on top and, 
um, oftentimes bigger than that. But, you know, the windier it is and the more waves there are, the easier the whales are to find. So it was the calm days when we couldn't find them. Interesting. Why is that? Because they're what? They're not around. I mean, we only had one day we were out that we didn't find killer whales. Um, but there were several calm days where it took us five or six hours to find them. Interesting. Yeah. I remember when we were down there, one of the things that um, people were saying was uh, on the calmer days, it's very quiet out there. Mm -hmm. And on the rougher days, you're more likely to see a predation because they think the whales are masking their own sound profile in the sound of the waves. And so on the quiet days, they aren't able to be as stealthy, Mm -hmm. um, which kind of parallels what we talk about here that. I mean, some of us think that the bigs are, are masking. I mean, how many times are we out with bigs and a ferry goes by or one of those container ships and then all of a sudden they're hunting? Yeah, yeah. Or the couple of match lines that have been hanging around like Kingston and Edmonds in West Seattle for the last two years all summer long. Right? All summer long, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so definitely um, the predominant food is beaked whales. So, you know, like the bottlenose whales. Or bottlenose um, Poor, poor buddies. Um, and I th- usually what it seems like is that they're kind of listening and waiting for these whales that have been down on a long dive, you know, several, you know, very deep for, you know, potentially an hour, potentially longer than that um, to come up to the surface and they're getting them on their way up. So mostly subsurface predations. We did have one surface predation on a beaked whale. Um but obviously they're getting them below the surface as they're trying to get up to breathe. What What is it like watching a predation like that on a, a, another a large whale? It's chaotic. Uh, definitely so chaotic. Um, so I've seen a predation on a gray whale in California in 2014. Um, and this was similar in some ways, but a lot more chaos in, in other ways. There were just tons of whales everywhere. It was like one pod would find the beaked whale and then you just see splashes everywhere you look of killer whales porpoising in from kilometers away. And suddenly there's like 50 or 60 killer whales, you know, all in the area kind of moving through this area. And there's birds swirling and shearwaters and albatross all around kind of fighting over oil and scraps of flesh and free lunch. Yeah. Yeah. And really like here, here we see birds associated with killer whales after they've made a kill there they look for killer whales by looking for the birds. So if they see a swirl of birds, the birds kind of just follow the killer whales, like Man, waiting for them to make a kill. Oh, I mean, that would be such an interesting feeling to see a swarm of birds and in the distance a couple miles out and kind of understand what's going down out there. Yeah, yeah. And you'll see sometimes the huge slicks, you know, the oil slicks from the kills um, and know that's something crazy like a, a whale lost its life here you know not that long ago um and and not see any other evidence except for this slick with like storm petrels kind of bouncing through collecting oil or um that kind of thing and you were collecting data out there. i was yeah so for orca behavior institute uh kind of just basic monica will be back on to kind of talk about this more but uh there's a research methodology that has been used with the southern resident killer whales that we've used with the big killer whales um, and we'll be using with northern residents as well, um, where we're just kind of collecting information about um, like how fast the whales are moving. Are they 
how, you know, what their orientation is, uh, other, other basic information. And we wanted to see, would this research methodology show us anything? Would this work for a very different type of population of killer whales? Uh, and it seems to. So I was going to ask what, what your experience was with, with that. Yeah. Uh, it's a little tricky when they're like super spread out. Sometimes I just have to pick a group of whales. Um, to How crazy is that? Sometimes, sometimes I'm just going to have to pick a group <laughs> of killer whales. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the really cool thing about it is that, uh, we can kind of look at this data over time as we get more and more years of this collected, um, and see how behavior potentially could change as other factors are brought in prey availability, you know, anything really. Are you doing, have they already started a photo identification catalog? Were you helping to start that or? Uh, so they have, uh, a photo catalog from 2015, I think was the one I had, and they had one from 2019 as well. Um, so Dr. Rebecca Wellard uh, started Project Orca down there and is through Curtin University, and so she kind of maintains that census and or has. I'm, I'm not sure what the current status of it is, um, but it's a little little out of date. There's you know a lot, been a lot of changes in the last three years, so... Um, it was interesting to see the whales and kind of try to piece together who's who and who's related to who and, and that kind of thing. And these whales are, uh, from what I remember of seeing them, they're, they're pretty friendly to, <laughs> uh, and, and interested in interacting with very with, much. So, uh, people in boats like, and I think this is common for killer whales. I mean, they're dolphins. This is yeah. common for killer whales around the world. I think the killer whales, that we see here find us boring because they get nothing back. They get nothing back. And so they've stopped, you know, I think they've stopped because they're, they're, they're bored with us, but the ones down there are, mm -hmm. uh, are very, very friendly. Yeah. And it's not all of them. There's definitely groups that not, didn't really come close though. So swirl your favorite whale from down there, um, is, one of the these curious whales and in her pod she's part of cookies pod um she's really like the only one that while i was down there at least would kind of approach the boat and come under it several times um the rest of the group i mean had no issues with the boat but just didn't like approach to to look or in, interact or anything like that um but their matriarch down there is a whale known as split tip um and while well, post a photo very obvious whale has a split in the top of her dorsal fin then it kind of goes both different ways so if you look from behind it's like a y and she's very very curious and she has three young calves in her pod uh, probably under the age of three and those three are like joined at the the hip <laughs> um, and they're super curious they were constantly like coming over the boat coming under the boat rolling to look up at you um, they would swim away from the boat and jeff i think i sent you a video of this they would swim away from the boat and then pivot back around and like come to the side of the boat and like look up at the people looking at yeah, them. It'd be cool. We should post that. I remember that. We should post it in the show notes. If we yeah. Can. So had that little calf do that. Um, w one of my last days out there um, swam under the length of the boat because it's a catamaran. So between the two hulls came out under the bow and then did that 180 pivot and came back and vocalized at the surface wow. while looking up at the people. Very cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember seeing things like that when we were there and when I was there in 2020 with you, you know, coming, 
coming out between the hulls and matching the speed of the boat and turning yeah. on their side and looking up and just really, really neat behavior. Yeah, it's a really cool place to visit. Um, there's only two boats that go out of there, and I highly, highly recommend um, Natural East Charters. They've been doing that. Um, you know, they were the first ones to start down there. Um, I really uh, am impressed with the way they operate. Um, one of my biggest criteria for any operator I go out with is acting responsibly um, while you're out there, and they were just amazing to be with. So um, highly recommend Natural East Charters. They've still been having amazing stuff. They just had this, like, crazy surface predation on a Cuvier's beaked whale, like, two days wow. ago down seen, there. Seen one of those in eight years. Yeah, yeah. Antarctica, yeah, for um, about 10 seconds. <laughs> and those are the deepest, longest diving whales. I think they just set a record a few years ago, like three hours and 42 minutes. Wow. Something like that. And are you planning on uh, um, going back next year and continuing the data collection? I would love to. Yeah, <laughs> that's the plan. That's the plan. Well, um, I would like to go with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know I would love to go back. I, you know, I haven't talked to the, the folks down there, but um, that would be amazing to continue kind of looking and gathering this data and seeing how, you know, if it changes over the years or how it's staying the same, what whales are use, using the canyon system at different times of year or, you know, month, the same month over multiple years. Cause they do say they see seasonal changes like cookies pod, for example, leaves, uh, you know, I think they said the end of February, they usually don't see them after that. Uh, and they'll have other whales move into the Canyon system. So speaking of other whales, and I'd love to grab one of those photos from you to, to post in the show notes. A uh, few times you saw long finned pilot whales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my first. So we actually had some other. Um, I had several firsts down there, um, but long finned pilot whales and and a couple hundred at a time. Wow. Yeah, super big social structures. Yeah, as far as you know, we can able to infer, I suppose, and also really deep diving whales. Yeah, very and super big dorsal fins, yeah. like really wide. Yeah. The males very, have crazy. very cool looking. So we had a couple actually saw them my first my first trip out for the season there. Um, and it was really cool. It was just a quick visit with them and they weren't they were kind of spread out and I was like, well, that's okay. you know we saw pilot whales. I'm I'm stoked. Um, and then the last few days uh, we had two really cool um, encounters with them where it was like a couple hundred really tightly grouped surfacing next to the boat repeatedly. And just being really super social and spy hopping and that kind of thing. So um, I'll try to post some photos for that. But also saw false killer whales. Oh, nice. that's the one I I, <laughs> I was trying to put that out there. I wanted to see one of those so badly this year. Still have never seen one. Yeah, I, I uh, have missed them by like minutes before. Like this is my would have been my fourth miss if I had missed them. But uh, finally saw them. So that was really cool. They were traveling with some oceanic bottlenose dolphins. And then um, the southern bottlenose whales and grazed beaked whales too. Wow! All of these, all of these species you're talking about—they're all toothed whales. Mm-hmm. And the encounters that you had with the pilot whales and some of those more curious killer whales reminds me of this lady I met this winter. She's a research professor with the University of California system specializing in neuroanatomy and psychology and she's dabbled in marine mammal oh interesting neuroanatomy and psychology and we had a couple just really really interesting conversations about the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system and the paralimbic system which a lot of these toothed whales have which not all species do and there are very 
fascinating implications of having those systems in your brains associated with like self-awareness and group awareness and Mm -hmm. long-term retention of memory and emotional intelligence. And so these whales come and investigating boats in this area where they don't often see boats. Just got to wonder what's going through their minds. Yeah. And, and it's definitely interesting to see their response to the different boats. I mean, they approach both boats, but there it does seem like, um, they have certain memories about about both boats, you know, coming up to different ones or preferring to come up to different ones. So uh, it was just really interesting. But I think we see that here with mm-hmm. the oh, killer totally. whales here, yeah. Yeah. that they will behave differently with different boats. Yeah. yeah. And they haven't, um, they did tag one killer whale down there a couple of years ago. And it was interesting. I was just chatting with them, uh, you know, the, the folks that have been down there for, for a long time and they were saying that after they tagged the one uh that boat came back out and the whales disappeared like as soon as they heard the boat in the area and we've seen that too yeah here we we have seen that here and it, it makes sense yeah we're not the only smart animal out there hey that's, yeah that's right no we're the smartest animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was just a really cool encounter down there in bremer bay and i look forward to going back but uh I was getting text messages from you guys down there on what limited self-service and internet service I had um, about your adventures. And uh, Dave, and I think you texted me once and you're like, oh, yeah, we just saw, you know, like 10 fin whales before 930 in the morning. <laughs> I got that text from oh, you Oh, and <laughs> now we have hourglass dolphins on the bow. <laughs> That's a nice day. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. bad. Yeah, those fin whale encounters, if you find where they're where their food is they like they're an, they're an outside coastal species they don't hang around in like inside coastal waters and so if you can just kind of see those topographical features that dipthymetry and underneath the water and just kind of see the conditions that you might expect upwelling and the animals that are there to feed on that just bounty of life uh, you can usually run into pretty pretty impressive displays of of life yeah sometimes pilot whales a lot of times uh, humpback whales sometimes these groups of fin whales that you know they're not it's not a hundred together but if you just look kind of like out in front of you from your 10 o'clock to your two o'clock over the distance of a couple miles there might be a hundred fin whales out there yeah wow and i think the bathymetry is another thing about like bremer canyon too is it's this canyon system that kind of sits on the edge of the continental shelf and there's some like deep water um, natural gas leaks and, and that are kind of creating this um, ideal environment. And then you get the these three different currents that are all coming in, one, f- one from the south, one from the east, one from the west, um, northwest, and um, creating this really rich upwelling uh, during the austral summer. And that's why we get these, these killer whales out here, but they're feeding on, you know, s- squid and tuna, the, t- the tuna are coming down um, and they're young. Um, and just a ton, but they, the crew there have done, you know, work with, on documentaries. And so they've seen huge giant squid, like 18 meter giant squid down there. And the biggest eyeball in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Crazy. So it's just amazing. Like, yeah. When you pay attention to the bathymetry, um, and this underwater topography and just seeing kind of where all these, uh, like perfect storms of life you know, are mm. created. It's amazing what you can find. And, and what is, is honestly like the ocean as a whole is kind of a big desert, but there's these hot spots of life uh, where the conditions are just perfect and then you're in for a treat. 
That sound, sounds like an amazing experience in Bremer, Antarctica, the Arctic. But you had your own uh, I, amazing I, experiences. I did, and I one of them was really last minute. Um, I remember you, you know, texting I, about it. Yeah, I had uh, had planned two weeks back to back trips to the Silver Bank, uh, one one with you, and then um, right around Christmas, the opportunity came up. I got a text message with a last minute uh, inquiry asking if I would be interested in joining a few other of uh, the whale watching guys out here, and including and, Gary, and Gary who was on, been on. he's been on uh, Gary Sutton. Um, he and Jared Towers, and then uh, a couple other of the um, one other whale watcher from Friday Harbor, and uh, one from Victoria had chartered a sailboat for ten days, and we're leaving out of Cabo. We're going to go up into the Sea of Cortez, and then come back to Cabo. And hey, you want to come along? <laughs> How do you say no to that, right? No, sorry, I've, I've got, I've got, I'm busy. <laughs> And I, I had no idea what to expect. I've never been, been down there. I mean, I knew there were humpbacks down there because I knew there were a lot of the humpbacks that we see in the summertime up here mm-hmm. are down there uh, for for breeding and calving. Um, so I knew there was a good uh, breeding ground down there. I had no idea, like going in, I, you know, I knew the geography of, of the breeding area that it was, you know, off of Cabo, up into the Sea of Cortez, all the way down to um, the the mainland. I don't know if it's Puerto Vallarta or wh- what what is down there. I can't remember, but it it just seemed very spread out from all the sightings reports that I've seen um, on like Happy Whale and stuff like that. What blew my mind was right off of Cabo, um, you know, close to shore, to ten miles offshore, all the way to the east, um, to where you get and go up into the Sea of Cortez. There were humpbacks everywhere. It was, uh, and and even the, the people that, that I was with were commenting that it was it was like being in Maui. Um, there were a ton of that's, humpbacks. That's one of the things we were just kind of chatting about before we got on these microphones. Was uh, like when you go to Antarctica, really, maybe a few locations in the Arctic, like especially the Bering Sea. Um, the amount of humpbacks you see, like in the th- when it when they're in the thick of their feeding, there's too many to count. And we were just talking about, you know, Baja, Mexico, the Dominican Republic, Australia, Antarctica, the Arctic. These are all areas that were commercially whaled mm-hmm. not long ago. Absolutely. Th- there were some decades there where it was hard, if not impossible, to see any humpbacks and. Thankfully, we all now have stories from this year, from our actual lives, where we've gone to places where you just described, like, they're, are, they're just everywhere. It's everywhere. Well, and look at what we get to see, what we have seen change up here right. in the last 10 to 20 years and the, the huge growth in the number of humpbacks using this old feeding area that was empty for 100 years. Yeah. Um, it was cool. Uh a lot of the humpbacks down there, we were able to get IDs on uh, through Happy Whale, and it was interesting. I think uh, a lot of them that we were IDing were from from Monterey. Uh, we did get a couple Salish Sea, uh, none none of the like familiar ones that mm-hmm. that. Uh, although we did at one point, we thought we found Valiant, and but it, it didn't. It turned out to be another whale with the same <laughs> uh, same same part of the fluke missing. Um, but two interesting. Uh, 
there were there was a group of two um, that had two whales that were um, ID'd from Alaska, which you think about the that migration. That's a long way, and one of them had had sightings in southeast Alaska, but also all the way up into the Aleutian Islands. Nice. And so that all the way down to Baja is a long well, that, way. That's yeah. the gray whale migration as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's effectively the same route. Yeah. That's crazy. And then we did, did get a cool ID on one that only had one other documented sighting on happy whale. And that was from 2006 in Maui. Um, so that was kind of, it's like, where have you been? Yeah. Kind of, kind of, kind of cool. Um, it's just so cool to think about that migration to know that, you know, you don't just make that without, I guess, being taught or shown the way, like your, your mother's going to teach you that when you're a calf and her mother would have taught her that when she was a calf, et cetera, et cetera. And there's these migrations that happen, not just from Baja to San Juan Island, but sometimes Central America to Alaska, thousands of miles each way, both ways, every year. It's just, I mean. And it, you, you raise a great point about them being taught, and they get taught once. Right. They get, they get one lesson, and that's it. Yeah. Now you're expected to know. And think about, think about like, wh- us getting taught something one time, and it's like, that's all you get. Mm-hmm. Here's how to walk to the grocery store around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> amazing so yeah but it was really cool we did um we went up the sea of cortez all the way to la paz um highlight of la paz was the awesome whale museum yeah you've been going on about that it must be pretty cool well the number of skeletons that they had in there um from all different species of whales and dolphins they had um sperm whale it was really and they actually had a preserved fetus of a dwarf sperm whale um that had washed up I and mean, just really, really incredible. Um, we did get the, it was really windy there for a few days. So, um, rather than just sit around on the boat, uh, doing nothing, we jumped in a car, we rented a car and drove across to the Pacific coast and spent a day in Magdalena Bay, uh, with gray whales, Nice, uh, which was, was pretty cool. Cause like when I, we see gray whales here, you see one, maybe two, um, if you're lucky, you get a pair, but mm-hmm. it's usually single. It was cool seeing them in groups of six and eight. Um, I'd never actually personally seen that before. And we did get one friendly, um, which is pretty cool. I had a GoPro and I was just, you know, sticking my hand in the water with the GoPro, having no idea what I was shooting and, and got some really cool footage of, of the, a gray whale, like literally just, it, it's almost like he was getting a head massage with the bottom <laughs> of the boat. Um, like constantly coming over and rubbing his head underneath the boat and just making physical contact and holding his head. Exfoliating sponge. Yeah. (laughs) And, and just really, really, really cool to see. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that, that was, that was a great trip. And then uh, from there it was onward east, eastward. Onward eastward. Onward eastward to uh, the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Um, You joined me for the first week. Um, I stayed on for, for a second week. And from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Plata, it is 75 miles offshore to an area called Into the Into the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> uh, Did you find any, like, treasures and stuff? Well, we, we, we 
um, disappeared for several days nice. and yeah. then came back and, and had nobody had any memory of it. <laughs> um, and uh, you may have, uh, if you listened to episode um, episode seven, uh, we talked with Gene Flipsy, who's the operator, owner-operator of Conscious Breath Adventures, who we were, we were on board with. Um, and we so we went 75 miles offshore. It is um, a shallow bank, average depth, I think, around 50 to 75 feet. It's about 10 by 20 miles uh, big. Uh, but surrounded by ocean, deep uh, ocean, with, with some of these drop-offs and canyons. I mean, w- at one point... Third, third deepest in the world, I think, the Puerto Rico Trench that we were crossing. Yeah, it was. I think at one point, was it 16,000 feet deep? Holy yeah. uh, buckets, really? Yeah, yeah. and so yeah, so you're going over, like, that overnight... So typically, it's an overnight crossing when you, you're first, first venturing out there. And uh, for... Both weeks that I was on, um, occasionally this will happen where they're like, hey, it's really not going to be comfortable tonight at all. Um, and so we're going to make the crossing tomorrow during the day. And it's still not going to be comfortable, but. But we'll bring you sandwiches. <laughs> right. And it's it's one of those things where you almost forget when you're when you're out in those conditions and you're just like, uh, it's about a, a seven to eight hour crossing. And, you know, at some point. Which doesn't sound all that long, but when you're in, in big seas, it 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 like you know it, it can drag on, and you you forget why you're going, and all you can think about is this is really uncomfortable. Um, and but once you have that first encounter out there, uh, it's like okay, worth it. Totally, it's like, and then you know you can do it again, right? Yeah. You, like some there's sometimes where you're like, man, I am glad I did that. I don't know if I'd ever do it again. But you know that you can get through discomfort, right? I have a friend that I work with who uh, is a phenomenal photographer. She's an incredible photographer. And uh, I asked, you know, what what her approach is to being a professional guide. She's also worked as a biologist, uh, won a huge prize with the BBC for photography. And she said, I'm just comfortable being uncomfortable. And if you can get to that point, right, if you can get battle through some discomfort that crossing that lasts seven or eight hours and if you can become comfortable in that man you're gonna see some remarkable stuff like you saw at silverbank yeah the, the yep. payoff is is huge um and i, I want to touch on one thing before we jump into some of the stories of what we experienced out there and this is a common theme throughout all of our experiences that we're talking about here because it's so important with what we do here that we go out in a very respectful way with respectful operators Mm-hmm. And some people get a little bit uncomfortable hearing about the, like we are getting into the water with humpback whales out on the silver bank. It is permitted. Um, it is a, a sanctuary out there where they limit the number of, there are, I think it's around 700 people a year that get to go out under permit. Um, 699 because you went twice. <laughs> <laughs> and so you think about the number of people on, on and it, and you're, you are restricted to a very small part of the bank. You can't, it's not like you can just go wherever you want. It's, it's all three permit holders. Uh, the companies that have permits are, are restricted to the same part of the bank. And one of the things that they tell you early on in the orientation, which I think is really good for expectation setting and also uh, perspective is the majority that we will see a lot of whales during the week. You're out there for a full week. 
And almost all of the whales that we will see, we will not even think about getting in the water with. Mm -hmm. That it is only done under the mo the right and most respectful circumstances and it is always up to the whale or the, or the whales that you're in with is if that encounter will continue or or immediately end before I mean, the guide always gets in first and sometimes those encounters end as soon as the guide gets in the water and it's done you move on you go whale watching and when you come across whales that fit the criteria for getting in the water, you try it again. Mm -hmm. If all, when all the people get into the water in a very specific, quiet way, if the whales aren't comfortable, they move on, you're done. Um, the magic is when you get into the water with resting whales that are totally aware that you're there. Sometimes it's a mom and calf. Uh, sometimes it's a male and female adult. Sometimes it's a mom and calf with a male escort who is hoping to, to breed with the female. Um, and they are completely 100% aware of your presence and totally cool with it. Yeah, it, it, everything you're just describing, years ago, and this is more than two years ago, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, um, I was working as kind of a field biologist slash ranger at a brown bear sanctuary in alaska and there's a few of these places in alaska the most well-known ones are like brooks camp or brooks falls and mcneil river where you see all these photos of bears standing in waterfalls catching salmon leaping up the waterfall and those are the two famous ones but there's a handful of others around alaska and it's very methodical how you even get to the general area and then once you're to the general area it's very methodical on how you walk to the creek and you can only be in one place. You can only make so much movement. There can only be so many people there. It's very, the human presence and the human movement is very controlled so that it's predictable, right? We're not a threat. We're not a source of food. We're not making any sudden movements that the bears aren't expecting. And when you become predictable in a very non-threatening way, then those animals are aware you're there. They look at you and they're like, oh, look at those stupid bipedal <laughs> things that never seem to fight or eat or anything. They just stand around like geese. Um, it's probably pretty similar. I mean, you can't necessarily take terrestrial and marine wildlife and assume everything's happening similarly. But like when we control ourselves and limit our movements and approach cautiously and slowly and methodically, and then we're predictable, then you can actually have these encounters that you're probably talking about as long as you're doing it in the right way. Ab absolutely and it's it's not like we're all cannonballing off the side of a boat right in the path of right. traveling humpbacks like with a corona in your hand <laughs> blasting music off the boat right so i mean sometimes it takes an hour or longer before we even try and so it's, it's very slow and deliberate you you can spend over an hour and then you try and it doesn't work and you you move on and you just spent over an hour trying trying but it mm -hmm. You know, you're still whale watching from the surface. You're still right. seeing humpbacks. But it's funny what, what you're saying about them, you know, looking at us. I, one of the things that, re that really strikes me, um, when you're viewing humpbacks that are resting, and they are resting, uh, they're not resting on the bottom, but they're fairly close. But, you know, they're, they're in the water column. They're not up against any kind of surface. And they are 100% still. 
and they will sometimes adjust a pec fin. Like, you, if you're not looking for it, you wouldn't even notice. But, yeah. like, if you're staring at their pec fin, you'll notice this slight movement on occasion. And they are just sitting there totally still, not moving a muscle and not moving anywhere in the water column. And then we're a group of, like, 10 of us, all clunking heads, <laughs> treading water, totally, like, not like graceful yeah. and i think they're looking up like wow thank god i'm not them yeah <laughs> breathing heavily sucking right? water yeah. in your snorkel <laughs> yeah. right yeah yeah we are so clunky um sarah what uh during the week that we were out there we'd love to hear like, <laughs> like some of some of the impressions from you this was your second time yeah, yeah. um one of the things that gene said on our podcast and i and i'm evidence of that gene will say if if, if you come twice you're very likely to come a third or fourth time because of how different the second experience is, but it's also as epic. Yeah. As, I don't as think I'll first. go a third time. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. No, it was great. Um, it was very different from our first uh, week out there in yeah. 2019. Um, we had, I think, I think I only had the, I had two, we had two in water encounters with the mom and calf um, the week that I was there uh, whereas like this, the, this year, this year, the previous week was like every, every, encounter. every encounter was with a mom and calf and, and the same mom and calf. Um, but we had um, three, three encounters. I mean, pretty long encounters um, with resting adults with no calf. And that was pretty incredible just to like kind of sit there at the surface and watch them, as you said, just, uh, just hovering below you. Um, and, the first one we got in the water with were the two adults, the female and male. Um, and they were almost like nose to nose below us, uh, resting for, they were doing, tw- I think 24 she minutes, was 24, dives. 25. And he was, he came up at 17, um, and then would just circle around and go back down to her. And then they came up again. But, um, so that was really cool just to kind of watch them totally chill. Um, uh, but like nose to nose or over each other. It, I, one of the things I'm learning after doing this, this was my fifth and sixth week down there, is that the it's amazing to be in the water with a mom and calf. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's magical. But the encounters with the adults, the resting adults, mm-hmm. are typically the they have been the longest encounters that I've had. And like you know, we're we're whale watching here at the surface. We're not going to stay with humpbacks that are doing 24 minute. Or right, seventeen minute right. dives, but when you're in the water with them and you're ho- just you're hovering above them for seventeen and twenty four minutes, you're watching them and they're not even moving. And that seventeen and twenty four minutes goes by really yeah. fast yeah. because, yeah. I mean, they're they they might be fifty feet down, but you can see them. Yeah, and to watch how they rest and how, like I said, how they do not move a muscle. Just mm-hmm. these micro movements, basically like yeah. us just like keeping our balance as we're walking down yep. the street or something. Yep. Yeah. Or yeah, or exactly. Or like, you know, when you're in bed and you just like move your arm, yeah. right? It's like, it's nothing. Yeah. There's a couple of things that you just said that made me think of other thoughts. Um, You said that if you go two times, you'll likely go a third or fourth because of how different the experiences are. And that's wildlife generally, right? Like right. Yeah. every time we run a trip in the Salish Sea, we try to say whatever expectations you have, leave them on the dock because every trip's different. Mm-hmm. So it's the same as an extended seven-day trip on Silverbank. It's wild animals aren't 
it's not a canned experience, right? It's not like, okay, we're going to go see X, Y, and Z, and this is how it's going to be. It's they're wild animals and they're doing what they're doing. And every time you encounter them, it's an entirely different experience, just like it is here. Yeah, Com- completely. And I, I, I've had weeks on the Silver Bank where we didn't have a lot of in-water encounters, but you always get incredible surface mm-hmm. behaviors and, and see some amazing things. You just, it's anywhere you go with, with wildlife. You you can't control the weather. You can't control the wildlife. And you, you just don't know what you're going to get. But I think the key is... Being present in the moment. Being present in the moment because whatever you get, there is magic in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's up to us to find that magic. And if you're focused on your expectations of what you thought this was going to be, you're likely going to miss it yeah and and a great example is you know there may be people who like i just want to see a mom and calf and i want to have that interaction Mm -hmm. or i had an interaction like that on my first trip and i want that again and then you totally miss yeah the magic Mm -hmm. of being in there for an hour and a half with two resting adults Mm -hmm. who would come up and surface so slow and angle in a way that they would come up so that they could get a good look at you on their mm-hmm. way to the surface. And if you're bent out of shape about what you yeah. came in with, what expecting you're going to, that's going to go right past you yeah. and you just missed a life changing experience. Yeah, It's like, I, I try to say when really anywhere that I'm out with other people that are, we're just looking around, seeing what we can find is that the more things you're interested in, the more things you're interested in, the more interesting time you'll have. Like yep. if you can be open, not have any set expectations and just be observant, everything's going to blow your mind. Like every time you go outside, it's going to blow your mind, especially if you have what you're describing, a, just a single solitary adult humpback whale sleeping. Some people might be like, oh, boring. Let's see him jump. Look, if you're <laughs> open to that can change your life. Absolutely. We, it, that one. We did have, it's funny. Um, like tip, to pat myself on the back for that one. We're driving along and I was like, there's a peck fin down there. Like you could just see the peck fin. Like he was resting below and the, the water. The water was so clear. clear, And their peck fins are so white that we're <laughs> like cruising along at like 10 knots. And Sarah's like, I see a peck fin down there. And it was one resting adult. And down in the breeding areas, typically if you see a single adult, it's a male. Um, because if it's a female, like, She's going to have males with her. That's why they're there. Um, if the males typically, if they're on their own, are singing. And he was resting in a position where you would think he was singing. He was kind of, you know, head down, uh, which is what they do to, uh, to broadcast their song through the water column. But he wasn't singing. He was, he was resting. So I, we, we were saying he was on mute. Yeah. <laughs> Our mute singer. <laughs> He was a cool whale, but we did get in the water with a singer, and that was, I think, probably the standout for me was, um, you know, I, I lived in Maui, and time. so I've heard whales in, in the water before when I was snorkeling, but never so close, and you could feel it in your body. Oh, yeah. Like, you can... Yeah. I haven't had it with humpback whales, but other species, African lions, when they're roaring, you can... It's like you're at a Metallica concert or something. I don't don't know why I chose Metallica. I'm not actually a fan (laughs) of that band, but I was trying to think of something loud. But you can feel it like in your sternum. Like you can just feel it resonating inside. And that's, uh, boy, there you can't duplicate that. That's. It was so loud we could hear it without the hydrophone above 
the water above the water. We if you were there. sitting there treading water and and just or even in the boat, or even we could in hear the it. right, you could hear it sitting in the boat, not not through the hull, like you could hear it above the water. It was so. I mean, we were two hundred feet, feet from 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 it, and then as soon as you get in the water and your ears are below, it's it's blasting. It's, and we do have a recording of that. So yeah, we'll we do, and we can. Uh, yeah, we can. I can uh, post uh, post that in the show yeah. notes as well. The other thing I was thinking of is I saw some of your pictures of some of these humpbacks, or I guess some video clips of them swimming in these shallow, shallow waters in and amongst coral, like just kind of sea mounts and areas that might be fifty feet deep, surrounded by areas that are five feet deep. It's tropical. It's warm. There's not a lot of food, and they're perfectly at home in that environment in the Dominican Republic and some of those whales that go to the Dominican Republic are also going to Greenland and it's this severe landscape with steep steep precipitous cliffs that drop into the ocean and ice glaciers sea ice icebergs everywhere and they're perfectly at home there too Mm -hmm. it's amazing yeah I mean they're so well adapted to different different environments and yeah I think the Silver Bank I I I think it's you know less than average is is somewhere fifty to seventy five feet, and they've got coral heads that come all the way up to the to the surface, and yeah. they'll you'll see them swimming in areas where the coral heads are really close together, and they're just navigating navigating through there. Yeah, masters. One of the um, other uh, things I wanted to point out, and Sarah, you had a little bit of this with the. Um, uh, with our two resting adults, and I had this on the second week that I was there as well. Um, we had two resting adults. Um, it was uh, a female that that has has been identified before, and, and conscious breath has been in the water with her before. But I think the last time was 2015. She was with a really cool escort, and so you know the escorts will challenge each other, and and the female chooses one for however long he maintains. Uh, his status as challenger. And so it was just the two of them and the guide was in the water first. And then he, he gives the signal that we can come in and quietly approach him. We get up to, to the guide and I'm like, dude, I'm like, where's the challenger? Like I, I thought there was a challenger here. I just see this female resting, you know, in the, in the water the column, like, like 40 mm-hmm. feet below. And it's like, where's the escort? And he's like, oh, he's out patrolling somewhere. Keep your eyes open. And this is, I think, one of the coolest experiences when we are down there. Um, the escorts, the male escorts, sometimes, you know, sometimes they're the ones that push the female and female and calf off and say, yeah, I don't want to, like, I'm the focus, not these people. Like, let's leave. Um, but when they're cool with people in the water, they seem to be the ones with the most personality and, um, the most curiosity. Um, and so my, f- I'm looking around and looking around and finally I just see in the distance, just very faintly a white peck fin. That's all I can see. And it's just moving. And he's at the surface and it's just moving from right to left. And then I can, he's coming into view a little bit, making a turn and coming straight at us very slowly, very gracefully. And they, they talk about this, um, conscious breath talks about this in, in terms of like what to do in the water that they're incredibly aware of their surroundings. And there will be times where you have a fully grown 40 foot 
80,000 pound humpback whale. A school bus coming at you. It's coming straight yeah. at you and don't move. They aren't going to touch you. Be predictable. Be predictable. They are not going to touch you. They know exactly where you are. They've got their plan and they are in control of the situation. And I'm sitting there like, you know, oh my God, there's a 40 foot, 80,000 pound. Yeah. Um, and they, they, you know, it's beautiful to watch and they don't, I mean, they come close, I'm in quotes, but they don't come close to touching you. I think maybe 15 to 20 feet would be the closest maybe, but like directly under. Yeah. Um, very spatially aware animals. Very. Yeah. Very. Well, but we had that the first week with a very yeah. brief encounter with the with mom calf and, and escort. And my camera, f- of course, failed during that um, one encounter. Um, but the escort swam right, right under us. And and I would say he was probably at, at most 15 feet underneath us. Um, and I remember just looking down like, yeah, you could you could like flick your tail up right now and just like end, end me. And I was like, I know he won't. Um, but I'm just going to sit here cause if it happens, it happens, but I'm just going to take in this moment. Right. There's nothing being, you can do. Right, right. Right. So I'm just going to let go. That's like a big, it's, a, it's one of life's big lessons, right? Is letting go. And then these big profound moments will reveal themselves to you. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you're like. If you're panicking, trying to get out of the way, you're going to lose that moment. Yeah. And you could just see his eye looking up. Like you, you, you could see him looking up at you. Yeah. You know, he, totally. he knew you were there and, um, yeah, well, and really I think cool. that's what uh, yeah, I think part of it is they're coming out. They're curious, like like, hey, I want to I want to get a better look. That's a really cool snorkel you got. Hmm. <laughs> but I do. I think they're Those curious. Are vintage fins, and yeah. it's not like they don't know what people are, right? Like they see people whale watching, you know, when they're up north feeding wherever they are, and it's like they know what people are. And I think they're just a little bit curious, especially the escorts. So I'm curious. You've also done something similar in Arctic Norway with killer whales. Killer whales, yes. Curious how how it felt being in the water with killer whales versus being in the water with humpbacks. Much colder with killer whales. Much colder. <laughs> um, Emotionally? It's, it's, very di- it's very different. So with the humpbacks, um, in, both, in both circumstances, you feel that the animals are very aware that you're there. Um, and, and they will in different ways, kind of acknowledge that you're there. The humpbacks are looking at you. The orcas look at you too, but the humpbacks, it's a more of a slow pass. Um, often with, with the male escorts, it's a repeated pass. I mean, the, the patrolling escort, he did this five or six times while we were in the water, um, over the course of an hour would come around and, and actually at one point actually came, came towards us moved off, did a circle behind us and came, came back, like repeatedly checking you out. The orcas, it's far more fleeting. It's, it's like a, almost like a head nod. It's a look as they're going by and as they're, they're feeding. It's just them like raising their chin. Yeah. yeah what's, what's up? Um, and hey, so dude, Fisher hopping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's different, but in both cases, you definitely get the sense that you're they're aware of you and they understand what you're doing there. And, and, and in both cases, you're also aware that I'm not in control of this situation. And that's like, 
man, I, I can't believe I've been doing this as long as I have been, like making a career out of either field biology or science communication or kind of science tourism, for lack of a better word, ecotourism. Um, but I've had some moments that uh, I, I, I hope everybody can have a moment like this where you might be out in a national park or out on a, on a boat looking for wildlife and you're aware that you're observing wildlife, but those moments where you, it's like irrefutable that they're observing you also is yeah so cool. It's, it's, that's that life changing perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, you wonder sometimes we wonder this on, on when we're doing tours here, it's like, who's, who's watching who? Yeah. And when you see, when you can, like, when you know that that is the case, they're coming up to you, they're like that male escort making a few passes or that head nod, you like when you get that reciprocal recognition that, okay, I'm watching you and you're watching me, then you, it's almost like you, it's humbling. Like you don't see yourself as the only game in town. Right. Life, mm-hmm. life is, life has changed. It's, it's, the world is, is a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah. Life, life is a little bit bigger than just me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Awkward pause. Awkward pause. Are, are we out? <laughs> no, I um, think that was good. So we are going to do another trip in 2025 to the Silver Bank. Uh, David, hoping that you and Olivia will join us. Yeah, sounds great. And if any of you listening would are interested in joining us or have questions about that trip or any of the areas that we talked about, uh, definitely get in touch with us. You can email us at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram. You can message us there as well. Uh, if you enjoyed this, share this with your friends. Uh, leave us a review. Uh, we will now that we're back. We will have more upcoming episodes shortly uh, in the next few weeks. Have lots of ideas for uh, more great podcasts. If you have any uh, ideas or requests of topics you'd like to hear, uh, get in touch with us. Yeah, and if you guys have any questions for Dave and Jeff and myself about, you know, things you've heard on this episode, um, like Jeff said, email us. You can reach out on Instagram. We're happy to bring it up and answer them on the air too. And if you're interested in coming out with us uh, with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching, uh, definitely get in touch with us. And if you're on the boat with with any of us uh, and you have listened to our podcast, let, let, us, know. let us know. Let us know. We actually, there were people uh, in the Silver Bank uh, that – that listens to the podcast. And oh, it's just, nice. Yeah, nice. It's, it's really cool to hear people from all over the place listening to this. Well, shout out to them. Yes. And if you are coming out to the Salish Sea and you're want, wanting, wanting to get on a boat, now's a great time to be out here. It I really mean, they're, is. They're, this is a pretty good month for killer whale sightings. Uh, April is as well. But the thing about the spring is there's so much transition. There's so many different things moving through here. The birds are, even if you're not a birder, it's a, really cool time to be on the water uh the sea lions the stellar sea lions are still here maybe there might be some gray whales starting to come north anytime now uh, you never know what you're going to see you know like we've been talking about every time is different but it's just a neat time of year to be here in the springtime spring and fall i think are my favorite times out here yeah absolutely awesome well thank you for listening yeah thanks david for joining us again my pleasure